Welcome to the Oakland Heights Baptist Church Podcast. You're about to hear a message from our Sunday service. So if you will grab your Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 20, um, the, as you're turning there, also grab the study guide that you received in the bulletin. If you didn't receive a study guide when you came in today, or you didn't receive a bulletin, if, if you'll raise your hand, our ushers are ready and they have some copies of that study guide to help you out uh, so you can follow along with us today. Uh, and just keep your hands up while they make their way through. They'll find you. Uh, the, we have coming up this Sunday, uh, a week from today, we have uh, the 4th of July, right? We have our Independence Day. And we are very thankful that we get to celebrate uh, the freedom that we have. And that freedom for us, it's often said this way, that freedom isn't free. Right? People have paid a major sacrifice for the freedoms that we enjoy. And certainly, as we've learned that, uh, you know, they say that, that uh, freedom it has an expiration date, right? It could expire in one generation. We have to continually work to maintain and preserve that freedom. But certainly, other people have uh, paid a greater price and sacrifice for that. We're thankful for that. And that's not what we're talking about today, but it happens to coincide with where we're at in our Bible study. Uh, we have been studying the life of Elijah since January, and we've been going through First uh, Kings chapter 17, chapter 18, and chapter 19, and the, and the focal point of the content has been the prophet Elijah. In fact, we started our first uh, series about the, a man of God in a world of evil, and we've been tracking through the life of Elijah. But now we get to First Kings 20, and the man of God, Elijah is notably absent from the text. And there can be reasons for this. You remember, if you remember the end of chapter 19, he had anointed uh, Elisha to be prophet in his stead. He cast his mantle upon him. There's uh, some training that's going to happen there. In fact, we, the uh, Elisha taking over doesn't happen for a period of years. And so there's some training and preparation that happens for Elisha to be ready. Um, but we don't find Elijah in chapter 20. We do find uh, two prophets who come on three occasions uh, to address King Ahab. None of them are Elijah. And so instead of looking at uh, the man of God in this passage, God forces us to look at really focus on the world of evil and see what's going on in this world to help us understand uh, what's going on in our world and what, what's the, uh, the battle that's going on. And we'll find over the next three weeks that there is a battle, that you're in a fight. You may not even know it. If, if you don't know uh, what your, who your enemy is or what front that battle is being waged or his tactics or his strategy, what he wants to do, you're probably losing that battle. And unfortunately for most American Christians, we've been lulled to sleep. There's been a lack of persecution for decades that has just barely begin to show itself in the very early stages of persecution. I mean, we wouldn't identify with Chinese or, or other cultures where they're seeing their houses seized or in the Middle East or other Muslim countries where Christians are being beheaded or, or hung or North Korea where they're dragged into stadiums full of people to be mown down by automatic weapons. Uh, we would, that sounds like a fiction to us. But that's the reality that many Christians across the world live in. We are just now beginning to see the, the slightest bit of persecution. So we often live with the delusion that we don't have an enemy or that he's powerless or that he's not working to destroy us. And so today may be a reality check for, uh, for some of us. But as we start, I want you to consider one thing for me. I want you to consider... What is the best thing in your life? What's the best thing in life? Is it, maybe it's your health, maybe it's joy, maybe it's a relationship you have, maybe it's true love, maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you've been blessed with children and man, you just can't think of any greater treasure than that. Maybe it's a purpose that God has given you and it's your ministry or what is the greatest thing in your life? It's with that in mind, I want us to look at our text, 1 Kings chapter 20, because our, the big idea that's at the top of your study guide is this, that Satan has a plan to enslave you. 
so you better plan to fight. And that is true, we'll find today, that Satan has a plan, and his plan is to enslave you. So you better be ready to fight. We have to choose to fight. So 1 Kings chapter 20, we'll begin in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 6 together right now. We're introduced to Ben-Hadad, who's the king of Syria. It says, And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his hosts together. And there were thirty and two kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom of, called Israel. And he warred against it. Verse 2 says, And he sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel, into the city, and said unto him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, Thy silver and thy gold is mine. Thy wives also and thy children, even the goodliest, are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine and all that I have. And the messengers came again and said, Thus speaketh Ben-Hadad, saying, Although I have sent unto thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me thy silver and thy gold and thy wives and thy children, yet I will send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time, and they shall search thine house and the houses of thy servants, and it shall be that whatsoever is pleasant in thine eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. Father, as we open your word today, I ask for your help to read a story that's more than 3,000 years old and to understand what you want to teach us today. I pray that you would open our eyes. You've told us that the things written in this Old Testament are written for our learning and for our admonition. So God, teach us. We need you. Help us to understand the battle that we're in and how we can come victorious and have liberty. We'll praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a couple main points today. The first one, real simple. Satan has a plan to enslave you. That's Satan's plan. Ben-Hadad is, is an Old Testament figure. It's actually a title. You may, as you're reading the Bible and you're starting to study the, the lives of different kings and the history of Israel and Judah, you'll find the title Ben-Hadad used for several kings, at least three kings that are called by that name, and they're you know, within a span of two, three hundred years. So we find this Ben-Hadad, his name, in the, it means son of Hadad. Hadad is a... Uh, false god of the Syrians. He is the enemy of God, and Ben-Hadad is the enemy of the people of God. We, the application for us is clear, that we have an enemy. And our enemy is not with flesh and blood, although he works through people, and he works through governments. Our enemy is Satan. He is the chief enemy of God, and therefore he hates us, God's people. John chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. And that's because the governments, the, the principalities of this world are under the domain and the authority of Satan. Sometimes as you're reading in the New Testament and you read Jesus' temptation, that as he's out in the wilderness and the devil takes him to a high mountain and promises him he'll give him all the kingdoms of the world, if Jesus would just bow down and worship him. But Jesus doesn't reply, what are you talking about? That kingdom, those kingdoms belong to me. It's a real temptation for Christ because they do belong to Satan. One day, in Revelation chapter 11, it explains when Jesus comes back, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. But currently, they're under the domain and the control of Satan. He is the prince of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 calls him the God of this world, lowercase g. Because not only does he work through the principalities and the government structure, he also works through the religious structures, and he is the spiritual father of this world. If you haven't been born again, you are a child of the devil, according to Jesus. He actually said that some Jews who were Pharisees and, and Sadducees and lawyers, they were very religious and devout men. He said, you're of your father, the devil. You must be born again, he tells Nicodemus. So the world belongs to Satan, did you realize that just as God has a kingdom, Satan also has a kingdom? In fact, every person born, if you had a human father, you are born into Satan's kingdom. But by God's glorious plan of salvation, he made a way for you to be delivered 
from Satan's kingdom and brought into Christ's kingdom. It's, it's explained this way in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 where he's speaking about Jesus and he says that he hath delivered us from the power of darkness. That's God's name for the kingdom of Satan. And hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. What, what a blessed immigration that is. To be taken from the, the kingdom of Satan and translated into the kingdom of God. Well, praise the Lord. You have a great king. But you need to understand that there is another king. A prince of this world who has a kingdom. In John chapter 12... Jesus explains that the kingdom of Satan is not divided against itself. He says his kingdom, it wouldn't stand that way. They're not divided. They're organized in their structure. And his kingdom is under his rule. And they are following his will and his agenda. His will is to enslave you. That's his plan. He wants to keep lost people lost so that they can go to hell and spend eternity in torment. He wants to keep saved people defeated and enslaved. That's his will. Just as Ben-Hadad had a plan to enslave Ahab, your enemy, Satan, has a plan to enslave you. So you better fight. What's that plan? Observe the strategy from the scriptures that's in your study guide. Summarize this way. Number one, it begins with intimidation. First, he just shows up with all his host, it says in verse 1. And he sieges the city of Samaria. What happens in a siege? Well, the surrounding armies, the, the, the army, the attacking army surrounds the city. They cut off all the supplies in and out. So soon, water becomes scarce. Food becomes scarce. Things that you and I don't even think about. Medical supplies or firewood to cook. All those kind of things are suddenly not available. And people begin to starve. And this is what Ben-Hadad does. He comes with all his host. And man, he has masses. 32 kings he brings with him. Each one of them have their own army. How big do you imagine that army to be that surrounds the city of Samaria? The Bible doesn't tell us how many soldiers there were that sieged it. But he does tell us in the battles that follow how many soldiers died. In that first battle, we're not told the number of people that died. But we are told that they bring an equal army, the same number as they had before for the second battle. And we're told how many people die in that one. 127,000 soldiers of Syria die. Who knows how many hundreds of thousands of soldiers surrounded the city of Samaria. But there's a lot of them. For reference, the uh, children of Israel, we'll see it next week, they had 7,000 soldiers. So a city equipped with 7,000 soldiers is surrounded by hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And you need to understand that your enemy has the masses. He just does. It's because most people are in his kingdom. His kingdom is greater in population than God's kingdom. Jesus explains it this way in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14. He says, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. According to Jesus, most people aren't on the way of life. They're on the way of destruction. Most people are not in the kingdom of God. They're in the kingdom of Satan. The vast majority of people are lost. And so Satan commands his kingdom with masses. You ever go in a direction that's different than the crowd? You ever been in a classroom where overwhelmingly everyone says, yes, I, of course I believe in the Big Bang and natural selection and evolution? And you think, man, I... I believe God created the heaven and the earth. But I don't want to say it right now. You ever been in a conversation where somebody talks about one sin and somebody says, no, it's okay, it's just normal stuff. And so you think, man, I, I don't believe that. God's word calls that sin, but kind of intimidated to say anything about it. That's because the masses of people 
aren't in God's kingdom. It's intimidating. It's intimidating when you're thinking about all the issues of life, about whether or not you're going to college or whether or not you're going to, what you're going to do in your career, how you're going to date, or if you're going to get married, and if so, you have kids, how are you going to raise your kids? What are you going to do? About how you spend your money and what you do with your life? The masses of this world say one thing, and often, most often, almost always, it's different than what God's Word says. Not only does he have masses of humanity, he also has masses of devils. Hebrews chapter 12 says that there were, God created an innumerable host of angels. Some number that can't, some can't be numbered. You can't even number the number there are. There are. Our minds, our calculations can't do it. A third of them, according to Revelation chapter 12, a third of them rebel with Satan. So not only does he have the masses of humanity, he has a third of an innumerable number of angels who rebel. We call them devils. Not only does he have masses, he also intimidates with his might. Because these aren't just average farmers that he brought. They're soldiers, right? And they're, they're soldiers who it says there's 32 kings. These are important people, prominent people. And he says they have horses and chariots. These are formidable enemies. I want you to know that Satan uses prestigious and powerful influences to intimidate you. The way of the world, the, the way of Satan prince of this world is celebrated by not only the masses of voices but by mighty voices by prestigious voices educated enlightened popular intelligent beautiful voices christian be prepared because as you go out into this world you're going to find the experts saying one thing the highly educated saying something. The wealthy, the successful, the talented, the beautiful, the celebrities. Now, don't be surprised when Satan tries to intimidate you. If all these people, if my professors are so intelligent, I can barely understand what they're saying. If, if these people are so intelligent, they write these books and they're just awe-inspiring. Surely they're right and I'm wrong. Or surely they're right and God's wrong. He intimidates with his masses, with his might, but ultimately with his menace. Because it says that he besieged the city. And he warred against it. See, for Ahab, it's not just about, oh, I would like everyone to, to like me. I'm afraid of what people's opinions might be. For him, it's real danger. The people in his city are starving. And, and they've got them sieged, but not just that. And then they're warring against it, which means arrows and spears and rocks are being hurled over the walls. Hot tar is being poured over. People are suffering. Intimidation causes Ahab to capitulate to his enemy's demands. But before we're too hard on him, let's remember that most of us surrender to our enemy the moment that there's any threat that someone might think wrong of me. Someone might not like what I say. He's really good at intimidation. Honestly, we don't have to go a whole lot farther than this in our lives in America. We're not very good against fighting. Now, we think of ourselves as being valiant people because in our history, we've had people who stood up for governmental liberty. But when it comes to fighting the devil... Unfortunately, we're a little wimpy. But it doesn't stop there. It moves on. It begins with intimidation, but it escalates, in your notes, to manipulation. In verses 2 through 4, we read how that Ben-Hadad issues his demands. He's surrounded the city, and now that they're suffering, he issues a command, his demands. What does he want? All Ahab's gold, all his silver, his wives... I mean, how many wives do you need anyway? And his children. He wants those things. He says, I want those things. Probably what we would consider to be the best things that he has. And Ahab gives them up. 
I want you to know likewise that Satan wants to steal the very best things from you. John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus describes Satan as a thief. He says, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he contrasts it and says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. We'll get to Jesus' plan in a moment. But Satan's plan is to take everything from you. Those three things, his gold, his silver, and his family. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it speaks about the judgment seat of Christ. And things are described there that are eternal riches and some things that are temporal or just temporary riches. Some things that will last for eternity and some things that won't. The things that lasted for eternity were gold, silver, and precious stones. In studying the Bible, we would find gold being resembling the gifts of worship, silver being the word of God, and, and uh, precious stones being the souls of men. The very best things. That's what we find being demanded from Ahab, his gold, his silver, and his family. Those are the things that Satan wants to take from you. So he sends some messengers. By the way, did you know Satan has messengers? God has messengers. He sends prophets. Sometimes he sends angels. Satan has messengers too. You should be very cautious about who you receive counsel from. They may lead you the wrong way. But Ahab, how does he respond? First he, he says, my Lord, Ben-Hadad, you're my Lord, you're my master. Lowercase l, but he's saying, you're, you're my ruler. I belong to you. In fact, that's what he says. All that I am, I am thine. And all that I have is thine. He completely surrenders to him. And this may sound outrageous to you. Why would you surrender to someone who wants to destroy you, wants to take all those best things? Why would you give up your family? Why would you give up the silver and the gold? Yet Christians, in our time, willingly surrender their future, willingly surrender their riches, their family, their purpose, all the best things in life to our enemy, and most of us don't even know it. We're, we're like the, the church of Laodicea or Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. It describes them. Jesus says, thou sayest, I am rich, I am increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and you know, if we're honest, that's kind of how we would look at our lives. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, for many Christians in our time, we live thinking we're doing pretty good. We're blessed. Hashtag blessed. Not realizing that we've been stripped naked and someone has stolen from us. And we're wretched and miserable and poor. Someone's blinded us. Can I confess to you that pastors do this? We, really, we willingly surrender gold, silver, and precious stones. Gold is the gifts of worship. And, and we surrender that to the enemy because, honestly, money holds too high a place in our heart. So we struggle to compel people and to charge people to give as the Bible commands. We, we forfeit, we surrender the silver, the word of God and its authority because we've resigned ourselves to Greek and Hebrew and higher scholarship and human wisdom. Pastors surrender the, the souls of men, those precious stones, because honestly, it's really hard to preach the truth to people who don't want to hear it. And it's hard to make disciples. We'd rather just have a good service have everybody smiling. They could leave happy with us. We do it because of the masses. I'm talking about attendance. But I'm also talking about how everybody else sees. If you preach the truth of God's word, you'll be labeled a fanatic. We do it because of the might, because there's celebrity pastors and authors and, and scholars who would say differently. We do it because of the menace of people will be offended and they'll leave the church. People will call me names. But it's not just pastors. 
Parents often surrender their kids just as Ahab to the course of this world because of the masses. That's what everybody does. Because of the might. Because the experts say to do it this way. Because of the menace. If I don't, I'll be attacked. I'll be ridiculed. Teenagers surrender their purity and future and God's plan. Christians willingly surrender all the best things in life because they're afraid. And they're deceived. Often what we do is we substitute. We surrender the gold, silver, and precious stones so that, but we hold on to the wood, hay, and the stubble. Those are the things that were not eternal. They're just temporal. Somehow, somehow, in the United States of America, that's where Satan's got us. We've surrendered the most important things because he's given us a lot of riches, a lot of comfort, a lot of recreation, a lot of electronics, a lot of fun, and we've gotten distracted. And we've forgotten there's an enemy trying to steal from us. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with manipulation. It's not just enough for the enemy to take the best things from you. Did you notice that? In verse 5 and 6, I love what he says in verse 5. Ben-Hadad, when he shows up, after Ahab says, I'll give you everything. I'm thine. All that I have is thine. Verse 5, Ben-Hadad contacts him again. Sends messengers and says, Although I send unto you saying, I want your gold and silver and wives and children, I'm going to send my servants and they're going to take everything that's precious in thy sight. Everything that's important to you, anything that's good to you, I'm going to take it all. And notice, it's not just about what Ahab wants, or I'm sorry, what Ben-Hadad wants. It's, it's not what's pleasant in his eyes or pleasant in the servant's eyes. It's what's pleasant in Ahab's life. You see what he wants, the enemy wants from Ahab? He wants to make him miserable. He wants to steal everything from him, anything that he loves, anything that's good in his life. He wants it all. And our enemy is the same. He won't be satisfied with just your gold and your silver and your precious stones. You know what else he wants? He wants everything. He won't be appeased until you are completely desolate. You know what Jesus tells Peter? In, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that's the subjugation. I don't know if I told you that was your next blank. Subjugation is the next blank. It, it's a big word, it just means enslavement. He says, Satan has desired to have you, to own you, to possess you. Why? That he may sift you as wheat. And this is the way Satan works. It always starts small. Hey, give me your gold and your silver, your precious stones. Oh, you'll do that? Give me more. I want it all. I want to destroy you. He starts small, just, just this far, only this one time. Then Hadad wants everything, and your enemy, Satan, will only be satisfied when you're absolutely desolate and destroyed. Remember John 10, 10? The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I want you to know that God has a will for you. Did you know that? But Satan also has a will for you. Do you know what Satan's will is? Your enemy is out there like a roaring lion. Do you know what his will is? It's told us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 16 or 26. It says he's talking about that they have pastors and they have these ministers who are to teach them and instruct them God's word, the people, that they may recover themselves out of the snare or the trap of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. That's Satan's will for you. He wants to take you captive. He wants to enslave you. And he won't be happy until you're completely enslaved. He's not going to stop. He's like a bully. Give me this. Oh, you're going to give me that? Give me more. Now I want more. See, Ben-Hadad wasn't satisfied that he had 32 kings. I mean, how many kings? How much land do you need, Ben-Hadad? How many kings do you need to control? All of them. He's not happy with 32. He wants Ahab. And I want you to know that your enemy is not satisfied with the masses that he has following. He wants you. His, he's not satisfied with stealing your best things. He wants all things. 
The enemy's not satisfied with you being poor. He wants you desolate. He's not satisfied with just influencing you. He wants to enslave you. Christian, you've got to stop thinking that Satan is harmless. And you need to stop thinking that Satan is powerless. And you need to stop thinking that Satan is not really at work trying to enslave you. If you can't see the way that he's working, you're probably already defeated. Enslaved in ways that you don't even know. Been stolen from you. And you don't even realize that Satan has a plan to enslave you. Let me give you your second main point is this. It's the good news here. That God has a plan to emancipate you. You know, that's what God's about. When he sent Jesus, he said, Jesus said, if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Man, Satan has a, a plan to enslave you. But the good news is God has a plan to emancipate you. What is that plan? I mean, how does that happen? How can I be set free? How can I overcome this enemy who's attacking my life? How can I get victory in this area? Well, let's read verse 7 through 9. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark, I pray you, and see how this man seeketh mischief. For he sent unto me for my wives and for my children and for my silver and for my gold, and I denied him not. And all the elders and all the people said unto him, Hearken not unto him, nor consent. Wherefore he said unto the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that thou didst send for thy servant, at the first I will do. But this thing I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. I want you to see your first bullet in this. is Hear the right voices. He's been listening to other voices of Ben-Hadad, of the messengers. But now he's got to hear the right voices. Those are the voices of the elders. At first he's willing to give everything away. And the elders say, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Don't listen to him. Don't consent to what he's saying. Even so, Christian, today, you need to stop listening to the multitude of voices, to the, to the strong and mighty voices, to the experts that are around you. Listen to the right voices. This word elders in, in the Old Testament it refers to national leaders of Israel, governmental leaders. In the New Testament, that word is a synonym for pastors. And God has given you pastors to help you. He, he's given you small group leaders to help you. He's given you teachers to help you. He's given you disciple makers to help you. Listen to the right voices. Stop listening to the voices of this world, to the voices of your enemy. You should know better than to listen to your enemy. Instead, listen to your spiritual leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 says it this way. Obey them that have rule, have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Now check this out. For they watch for your souls. Man, you got, you got a pastor who's watching out for your soul. He, he cares more about your spiritual victory than he cares about your financial affluence or your recreation or your popularity in the community or your advancement in your career. You might tell me, you said, well, I don't think I want to listen then. You better start listening to the right voices. You got Sunday school teachers, you got disciple makers, you got teachers, and they're wanting to invest in you. They're watching for your souls. Listen to the right voices. By the way, if you're, if you're a leader, if you fit any of those categories that we talked about, if you're a parent, if you're a pastor, if you're a teacher, a small group leader, a disciple maker, I want you to notice the last phrase that we have. As they that must give account. One day you'll stand before the Lord and give an account for the counsel that you give. You'd better be sure that you're given a counsel of God's word, not your opinion, not what you've always done, or what you've always thought, or what you've seen work, but what does God's word say? And you better share it because you're going to give an account. Oh, can I just, can I be honest with you for a second? It's something God works on me. That's where he's got me right now in my life. Will I be faithful to his word? Will I tell people the truth even when it's difficult to hear? Even when they might not like me when I tell them. One of the first things that we heard about Elijah's life, the very first lesson, was he's an ambassador. He speaks for God. 
And if you want to be a man of God, you want to be a woman of God, your job as an ambassador to speak for your king, to represent him, not to put myself in a good light, not to make everybody else love me, but to represent my king well. Hear the right voices. But be careful, because verse 7, look at it again. It begins with, then, the king of Israel. Oftentimes, Christians are just like Ahab. They wait until then to come listen to elders, to consult godly counsel. They wait until that it's the last resort. I've, I've given away everything. I've made a mess of this situation. I've tried every other means, and now nothing has worked. I'm in worse case than I ever was. As a last resort, I better find out what God's got to say about this. Don't wait till then. Don't wait until your finances are at a place where it's absolute ruin before you ask counsel from godly people. Don't wait until your marriage, there's really no hope left. It's pretty much done. Don't wait until your spiritual life or your addiction is in such a place that it's devastation. But yet we know that sometimes people, us, we have to get to the rock bottom before we're willing to listen to God's word. But you don't have to be that way. You don't have to wait till then. You can search it early. You can hear sermons and you can listen. You can ask your disciple maker. You can listen to lessons. Talk to your Sunday school teacher, small group leaders. Let me give you the second bullet is fear the right Lord. We'll recall in verse 4 that... Uh, Ahab calls Ben-Hadad, my Lord, lowercase l. He's afraid of him. He's, you're, you, you're my master. I'm your servant. You're my ruler. And certainly God has given us lords in this life, lowercase l. He's given us leaders. He's given us rulers. He's given us husbands and parents and bosses and governmental leaders. And we're supposed to obey them until it's something that contradicts God's word. But at that point... We're to fear the Lord, capital L, more than we fear our Lord's, lowercase l. Read verse 10 with me. It says, And Ben-Hadad sent unto him, unto Ahab, and said, The gods do so unto me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. You know what he's telling him is, I have all these people with me, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to bring all these armies, and all the dust of that desert it's going to seem like a handful compared to the number of people that I bring to bring a storm down on your place. But, Eli, but Ahab's not afraid. We see it in verse 11 when he says, Tell him, let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it off. Now, that may be strange wording for you and I, but putting on your harness is something you do before battle, and taking your harness off is something you do after battle. What he's saying is, don't boast yet. You haven't fought yet. We might say it this way, the, uh, don't count your chickens before they hatch. We might say it this way, it's not over till the fat lady sings. You still got a fight coming. Right? So now he's fearing the Lord more than he's fearing Ben-Hadad. That's a key for you. Psalm 1110 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let me ask you, who, do you, who are you more afraid of? Your heavenly Lord or your earthly Lord's? Are you more afraid of what God thinks? Do you care more about that or do you care more about what people think? Jesus says it this way, Matthew 10, 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You ought to fear the Lord more than you fear any person. So fear the right Lord. The third bullet you have is fight the right fight. That's what he tells him in, in verse 11 when he says, uh, let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it off. Listen, I don't know. I'm not really a fighter. I guess I'm more of a lover, you know? But can't we all just get along, man? I, I feel like David in Psalm chapter 127, he says, uh, I'm for war. I'm for peace but they're for war. And listen, you may be a peaceful-minded person. You just want peace. 
But I'm going to tell you, your enemy is not for peace. Your enemy is for war. He's out to destroy you. So at some point, you have to decide, I'm going to fight. You either fight or you get destroyed. Look at verse 12. And it came to pass when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking and the kings in the pavilion, that he said unto his servants, set yourselves in array. And they set themselves in array against the city. It means they got in their battle formations. They're going to fight. You've got to fight the right fight. You've got to be willing to do battle. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, i got good news for you. It says, You're of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Well, praise the Lord. Listen, you're going to fight that fight. But some of the words that we sang earlier about how our help cometh from above is from the Lord. We lift up our eyes to the Lord, right? To the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, we, we sing those songs. We sing songs like there's victory in Jesus. And truly, there is. But in this area of spiritual warfare, you have to fight. Sometimes people take those songs and they take them to the extreme of saying, well, God will bring me victory. I don't have to battle. That couldn't be further from the truth, man. The, the enemy would love for you to do that. In fact, that may be what got you in this place in the first place. You have to fight. Ephesians chapter 6 is the premier passage of scripture that deals with spiritual warfare. He doesn't say, don't worry, God's stronger than the devil. Everything will work out. Instead, Paul instructs the church be strong and stand against the wiles of the devil. In fact, he says four times in that passage, stand against them. You're going to have to stand up and you're going to have to fight. He tells him, put on the whole armor of God. He tells him to take the shield of faith so that you can quench the fiery darts of the wicked. Listen, this is for real. The enemy is going to attack. You've got to fight. You've got to choose to fight the right fight. Paul said, I, I fought the good fight of faith. He tells Timothy to war a good warfare. You are no different, Christian. Satan is bringing an attack to your doorstep. Are you willing to fight? The fourth bullet, leave the right message. We've been hearing from the messengers of Ben-Hadad, but in verse 13, God sends his own message through a messenger. Verse 13 says, And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. God's got a different message. Look at verse 14. As it continues, Ahab said, By whom? Who's going to give us this victory? And he said, Thus saith the Lord, even by the young men of the princes of the prophets. Then he said, Who shall order the battle? And he answered, Thou. Did you notice the, the contrast between the messengers of Ben-Hadad and the messenger of God? Ben-Hadad says, you will deliver everything to me. But you know what God says? God says, I'll deliver him to you. Ben-Hadad says, I have great multitudes. God says, I am the Lord. Ben-Hadad says, I will take from your servants. And God says, I'll deliver you by your servants. Oh, God will give you victory. Just so you know, he's the Lord. You see that? That's what he says. Verse 13, I will deliver it into thy hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. You've got to believe the right message. There's lots of messages coming to you all the time. Turn on the news. Scroll social media. You'll find lots of messages from this world. Where you find the message of God is in his word. You've got to choose what you're going to believe. Choose who you're going to believe. Your enemy or the God who loves you so much, he died to allow you to come into his kingdom. Let me give you the last bullet and list the right people. Because it said in verse 14, who's going to bring this video by whom? 
by the young man of the princes of the provinces. God could have used lots of things to bring victory. Throughout his word, we see God bringing victory to his people in numerous ways. We see sometimes it's angels. In 2 Kings chapter 6 and 1935, we see an angel comes and at one night kills 185,000 soldiers. God could have used an angel. They're ready. God could have used other, uh, the turning their allies against each other. He did that in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You know those 32 kings? He could have pit them against each other and they'd kill each other. He didn't do that. He could have used foreign armies like he did in 1 Kings 19 or inflicting blindness in 2 Kings chapter 6 or paranoia like he did in 2 Kings chapter 7 or natural disasters like he did in Exodus chapter 14 or even miraculous intervention like in Joshua chapter 10 when he rained fire and brimstone down on Israel's enemies. He could have used anything he wanted to bring victory, but she chooses to use people. The young men of the princes of the provinces, and you need to enlist the right people. You want victory in your life? You better start surrounding yourselves with the right people. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20 says it this way. Let me think of how it says it. Sorry. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. A wise man is someone who hears and obeys God's word. A fool is somebody who hears and disobeys. You need the right people in your life. Surround yourself with people who will support you spiritually, who will give you accountability, who will speak truth into your life. So let me ask you, you ready to fight? Did you notice in verse 14 when Ahab asked, who will order the battle? Maybe he was hoping somebody else, but God said thou. And I want you to know you have to order the battle in your life. You have to decide to fight. Listen, your pastor wants to fight with you, and I'll pray with you. But you have to choose to fight. Your parents or your small group leader or, or your disciple maker or your friends can want it for you, but ultimately you've got to stand up and fight and realize that you have an enemy who's trying to destroy you and enslave you. And you're going to have to stand up and fight. You have to do it yourself. Remember when we learned about Satan's will is to enslave you? 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26. He says that you have these ministers and you have these pastors and these leaders that, that, they would, that you could recover them yourself out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Satan has a will to take you captive, but notice the first part of that phrase. The first part of that verse says that you need to recover yourself. You have to fight. You see, Satan has a plan to enslave you. So you better plan to fight. What do you have that's worth fighting for? What's the best thing in your life? You've got to fight for your worship. You've got to fight for your walk with God. You've got to fight for your purity. You've got to fight for your future, for your family, for your ministry. You see, you've got an enemy who wants to destroy you. Father, we lift up your name today. We've come to your word. And I pray that you make it so real. Help us to understand the reality of this warfare. We can't see it, so we, we struggle to believe it. So increase our faith. God, I pray that today you will use your word to change us. That we would walk out of here a different people. We came in. Maybe just as people. God, help us to walk out as soldiers. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I, I want to give you a second just to respond to the Lord, however he's dealing with you. It could be that you've been listening to the wrong voices, following the wrong path. Would you just ask God, how, how am I living like the world tells me to live? Or how I think instead of what you say? God, do I fear people and what they think or, or 
Or do I fear you and what you think? Lord, in what ways have I compromised on how I should live just so I could be accepted among the masses? God, help me to see how Satan is at work in my life. Help me to see ways that the enemy is trying to steal the best things from me. As we continue to pray, you may be here this morning and you're still in Satan's kingdom. There's never been a time in your life where Jesus took you out of the kingdom of Satan and into his own kingdom. That he saved you. A time when you were born again. If you don't know when that is, you can, that can happen for you today. That's God's will for you. He wants to set you free. He wants to give you not only freedom in this life, but he wants to give you everlasting life. And you can call on him and acknowledge that he is the king that you want to serve. You can admit that you're a sinner and you believe what he has done for you, that he died and that he rose again and he is the Lord. And you can call on him to save you and rescue you. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for meeting with us this morning. I pray that you'll help us to listen to the right voices and to fear you instead of men, that you'd help us to fight, to believe your word, and to enlist people around us who can help us and support us. We praise you for the victory that we can have in Jesus. Now, God, I pray that you'll help us to fight in that victory. In the name of Jesus, amen.